He was talking about me when he uh, dropped that back down. I know Phil, or, uh, Phil just prayed, but uh, if you'll just bow, and I'd like to ask the Lord for help today. Father, thank you for the privilege it is to bring your word to your people. I ask that you would help me to do it, to be faithful to the text, and that we would see Jesus Christ. We'd see him crucified, that we see him raised, and that we would see him seated at the right hand of the Father for us. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know um, what kind of resolutions you might make in 2024 um, at all. Uh, I don't know if that's your pattern. Maybe it is. Uh, Sometimes people will do that. Other times people will not. Um, But I'd like for at least one of your resolutions uh, for 2024, it's the title of today's sermon, to live 2024 as if you have cheated death. And why? Why would that be a resolution worthy of having? One of them is that uh, we are people who, because of Christ, have narrowly avoided death. If you have your copy of God's Word, open to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. Romans is the, one of the largest books of the New Testament. So you'll look for the Gospels, Acts, and you'll keep turning to the right and you'll get to Romans. Romans chapter 8, and if you have the big, the big numbers, the chapter, and the little numbers are the verses. Romans chapter 8, now I'm going to read for us Romans 8, 1 through 11. Romans 8, 1 through 11 says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who, walk, or those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in Christ, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. What does it look like to make a resolution as somebody who has narrowly escaped death. It means that you will be free to finally live 2024. In 1505, there was a law student who was headed back to university after a visit home, and he got stuck in a, a pretty severe thunderstorm. It was a, it was a significant. We, we tend to downplay the seriousness of uh, thunderstorms in our day and age because we've got great cars, we've got safe houses, and uh, thunderstorms are not particularly scary to those of us who've even grown up in this part. There are things worse than thunderstorms. Um, sometimes, though, they, they can get a bit spooky for us in, like, the month of April, for example. 
Um, this guy, this guy who's been caught in 1505, he's walking home, um, or he's traveling home, back to, back to school, and he's caught in the open road, and a thunderbolt strikes somewhere near him, and it scares him so much. He's so terrified for life that he prays to the only mediator he's ever heard of. He prays to somebody named St. Anne. He says, help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. True to his word, this resolution, help me and I'll become a monk, changed Martin Luther's life. Law student, dropped out of law school, and became a monk. Not yet the Martin Luther who will kick off the Reformation, but Martin Luther who is no longer law student. He quit law school and becomes an Augustinian monk. And uh, it's while he's teaching and under the tutelage of a guy named Johann Staupitz at University of Wittenberg, that dean of theology, that he begins to realize his need for justification by faith. It's actually when he's lecturing through the book of Romans, and he comes across Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that he sees, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That Luther says, I don't have peace. So he resolves again to understand what is this peace. Two resolutions now. I'll become a monk. I want to know this peace. He eventually starts a debate, right, which he just tried to expose some, some abuses of clergy, but ends up launching what we now call the Protestant Reformation. You see, what liberated Luther was that he narrowly escaped death twice. The first one was not a very important death. The first one was a near-death experience in a thunderstorm. Luther would have us know that that's not the most important one. But he narrowly escapes that death, and because of that, he's free to live his life now, not from the scruples of law, trying to make his dad happy, but he's actually pursuing something he's interested in. But then the second one, the one that really changed Martin Luther's life, was when he knew that he was apart from Christ, didn't have peace, and he reckoned with the fact that he suffered with perpetual guilt, and he wanted to know the peace of God and, uh, until, um, until he came across, and came across this grace, and he realized he narrowly escaped judgment. So in our, in our pericope right here, this Romans 8, 1 through 11, we have seen some really remarkable statements. But Romans itself is a really remarkable book. So if we were to zoom out for Romans 8, because we don't want to just jump into Romans 8 and just say stuff about it. We want to try to understand what the whole book says. We could experience it in a series of movements, Okay. Who knows, we might even go through Romans when we finish Exodus sometime next year. But there are five main movements in the book of Romans, and the one we're in right now is the third one, okay? The first one is a really important one where we learn about God's impartial wrath against sin. So Romans 1 through 3, we're learning about the fact that God does not really care your origin of birth, what you think your birthrights are, he sees all of us equally and recognizes that all of us fall short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned, and the wages of that sin is death. That's, that's kind of movement one. Movement two is this section where we're talking about what it means to struggle as those who are righteous by faith, but still struggle in the flesh with sin, who, who understand that there's a, we, we want to live a particular way, but we can't seem to live a particular way. This is the section of Romans that we're in today. The other two, the, the last two, one is on Israel, that's 9 through 11, and then 12 through the, the book is how do we live the Christian life? So from chapters 5 through 8, Paul is helping his audience, Paul's helping Christians see how 
the relationship between law and grace functions. I think it's a really noble reflection for us as we think about 2024, because my guess is that some of us are going to enter 2024 in kind of one of two paths. One is we're going to enter 2024 resolving to be better Christians, which is really important. We should want to please our Lord and our, and our master and want to make him happy. Uh, but we might live in an existential dread that we're not ever good enough and that what's true about Romans 5, we won't really experience peace. That might be track number one. But track number two, if we make a resolution, might be that we resolve to not care as much, to slip away, to pursue other things, other secondary things, to, to, to slip away, right? But here, we're, we're being reminded by Scripture that we have something in Christ. We have a real escape from death. So again, Romans 5 through 8, what Paul is helping us do is he's helped us make three main observations. And we can get overwhelmed sometimes with, the, with what we think of the complexity of Romans. So let me just simplify it to help us make sense of why he opens up with there's no condemnation. So point number one that he's making is that just like Adam's sin brought death into the world, Christ's life brings life into the world. Christ's death brings resurrected life into the world. So it's, that's key argument kind of number one up to this point. Key argument number two up to this point, up to Romans 8.1, is that grace does not mean two things. Grace does not mean, number one, that we can keep going on sinning. Should we continue in sins so that grace may abound? Absolutely not, Romans 6. Or, Romans 7, that the law is bad somehow. And we'll get to that in just a second. Number three, what we see up to this point is that sin breaks the law, so to speak, which is an interesting way to think about it, but sin takes the law and does something in our heart which breaks what's actually a very good thing for us and causes it to be a very, very bad thing in us. In fact, by exposing sin for what it is, right? God's law exposes sin for what it is, and then it seizes that law by provoking rebellion. We can sometimes get into uh, confusion thinking about law and grace, and the, the water can get really muddy because of how people can use the word law even outside of biblical concepts. So um, let me give us a stepladder so we can understand this concept a little easier. Anybody who has worked with children can understand this intuitively. You don't have to be a parent. If you've ever been around a kid in your entire life, this is something you can grasp. You can understand what Paul's talking about here when he talks about law, and then when he talks about when we don't have condemnation from the law anymore. So, for example, if you tell a child not to do something, unless you can absolutely remove all doubt from their mind that it's in their best interest to listen to you, what does that child want to do now that you said don't do that? They want to do it, right? What, is, what good is being kept from me? is the question that goes through their little heart. And they will transgress that rule to see what all the fuss is about. They'll touch the oven door to see if it's actually hot. Or they'll open the cabinet to see what, what might be kept from them. You know, from those examples, I have little kids, but it only gets, the, it only gets more and more uh, bigger as, uh, as they grow. But the minor stuff, Right? You can just avoid by not calling attention to it if you're a parent. And why do you not call attention to the minor things? Because the minute you make a rule, what happens? 
I, I want to know what that's about. So you kind of just ignore the minor stuff. You don't even mention it because then you won't cause problems for yourself. But the major stuff, you do have to draw clear lines, but those lines become magnets for their heart, don't they? Why, what's being kept from me? But it's not just kids either. It's us too. If we see signs that are keep out, unless it's clear that we will die if we open up some panel, right? Such as a, you know, some arc from a high voltage panel, you will at the very least think, huh, I wonder what's in there. At the very least, you'll think that. But if you think on it for a really long time, you will think to yourself, ah, I'm actually really curious. You might try to fiddle with the door, see what's open, you know, what's, what's behind that door. We'll transgress the sign, keep out to see what's on the other side, what good might be being kept from us. And what Paul says that we're set free that desire to see what's on the other side, that's what Paul is talking about we're now free from in Christ. He's clarifying for us that in Christ, we now see the rule, the law, that line as a good gift, and we no longer want to transgress it. So let's talk about how the gospel works to free us. Let's talk about what Paul is doing in Romans 8. The first thing that we have to see in our text is that a genuine death sentence really does hang over us. A genuine death sentence really does hang over us. We have to begin by acknowledging a very grim reality that Paul's making clear uh, throughout, this, throughout this book, but right before this. We're not talking about spiritual, uh, a physical death. We're talking about a very real spiritual death. In Romans 6, 23, he's said the wages of sin is death. What we all get and earn from transgressing, from looking on what's other, on the other side, is death. And that spiritual death is one of consequence. Even right before this, if you have your Bibles, just look right above, and you'll see what we're talking about here when we talk about this magnet of, of disobedience. Look at verse 21. So if I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. That's that magnet idea I'm talking about. For I delight in the law of the Lord in my inner being, but I see my members in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man am I, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I, I want to call your attention specifically to um, this idea that Paul is talking about when he sees the line, it's a magnet to his heart. He wants to obey and the reason for, or disobey. And the reason for that is simple. Our flesh grabs a hold of the law of God and twists it in two different directions. The first direction is we either boast about our ability to keep it perfectly. So we're really proud about the fact that we don't transgress. That's the first way that the law twists our hearts. We're, we're proud about the fact that I'm not like those other people. I'm not like them. We're, we're like the, the man that's praying in the synagogue, and he says, God, I thank you I'm not like that other sinner. And Jesus teaches us not to be like that person. But the law does that for us. At least I don't do that thing. But then the second thing that we might do is that we outright reject or disobey it altogether. That might be the second way the law grabs a hold of our hearts and twists it and bends it and breaks it. So we'll say, I don't even care about this anymore. There's emotional and spiritual implications to this as well, though. 
If you think about what the law of God is, let's go, for example, to Psalm 19, where it says the law is, is good, it's sweeter than honey. By keeping your word, your servant is warned. We could think about the Bible as an owner's manual for our lives. And when we step outside of God's clear design for our lives, we suffer real genuine consequences. I don't need to give those examples because we all know circumstances in our life, in our own past, where we have neglected or rejected the law of God and we've suffered on account of it. We've suffered because we've rejected the way that we were designed to live. But there's a greater weight and it's this weight of condemnation that, that hangs over us. When we say all have fallen and short, fall short of the glory of God, that means everybody without partiality. The people that think that they're good enough to keep the law on their own apart from Christ, and then the people who know that, that they don't even care about the law. This death sentence brought, brings us about this separation from God. And that's right there in verse 2 and verse 3. Right? If you think about this as if, if he's saying the positive here, the negative's true as well. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If Christ sets us free, sin causes death. But this other great gift here in verse 3 brings us to our second point, that God satisfies the moral and penal death sentence. So uh, there's, there's a great book I commend to you, Cross of Christ by John Stott, and he talks about in it, it opens it up with conversations about symbols. And it's interesting to him, you think about the survey of symbols, he, he talks about the ideological battles of the 20th century. He opens up talking about the sickle and the hammer, which was a symbol for the now demised Soviet Union. And symbols are really powerful because when looking at a symbol, you both learn about what the people who identify with that movement want to represent them, and then you see in the symbol the most important things to that movement, right? John Stott, in his book, he points out that the cross being the symbol of Christianity highlights for us the centrality of Jesus Christ crucified. And that tells us a couple things about the Christian gospel. Of course, that's Paul's whole point when he says, I'm determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ crucified. The cross is the center of Christian doctrine of atonement. Look at verse 8. For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Uh, back in 2010, I used to work as a server at Olive Garden in Montgomery, Alabama. And in my, my uh, little order book, um, I had this verse, Romans 8, 3. And it was in that book, and I had on the paper a kind of just a, a sentence, and it said, why did Jesus Christ uh, like come down, or something to that effect, or why did Jesus Christ take on flesh? It's for this reason right here. He condemns sin in the flesh. Christ's work does two things for us. It satisfies the moral requirements of the law, and it satisfies the gap that we cause by his death. So on the one hand, we receive in Christ's life his righteousness, the fact that he lived without sin, uh, fully a full life, and he gives that righteousness to us. Elsewhere, Paul writes that he became sin who knew no sin so that we become the righteousness of God. So that's, that's on the positive side. Jesus Christ's perfect life 
qualifies him to be a spotless sacrifice for us. But then his death also satisfies the judgment of God on sin. If the wages of sin is death, then somebody has to die for the sin which has occurred. That pattern, I'll remind you, goes all the way back to the garden. When Adam and Eve sin, they sow fig leaves for themselves, but that's insufficient covering. What does God have to do? He makes skins for them. An animal had to die in order to make skins to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. And throughout the whole Levitical law, we see that without what the author of Hebrews says, that without the shedding of sin, there's no forgiveness of blood. Jesus Christ, when he offers himself up, he's not just offering up positively the, the, his, his righteousness to us, he's also satisfying the guilty verdict that we earn for ourselves. So we see God's divine intervention here in our helplessness. If, if the guilty verdict hangs over us, God is intervening here, and he satisfies again the moral debt and the penal requirements, the punishment requirements of sin through his work in Jesus Christ. So verse 2, the Spirit grabs hold of the law to work a very different result. If the law within us makes us rebel, God's Spirit within us causes us and teaches over time to love God's law. Verse 9 through 10, thanks to the Spirit, we are no longer slaves to the flesh. So we no longer have to uh, obey the rebellion that we see when we see the line. It's no longer a magnet to us. Verse 11 through 17, we also share in the blessing of God's inheritance as sons and daughters of the Most High God. If we kept going in the book of uh, Romans chapter 8, we would see that this present life still has its weaknesses, its sufferings, and as believers, it groans. We groan with creation, awaiting a redemption and restoration of our bodies, Romans 8, 18 through 23. But even in that, he doesn't just free us from the requirements. If we kept going even further in the book of Romans chapter 8, we would see that the Spirit remains active in our weakness, ministering to us, praying for us, assisting us and assuring our salvation, Romans 8, 24, 27. And then finally, we get the assurance at the very end, some of probably some of y'all's favorite verses in all of Scripture, that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Because if he took on flesh to condemn sin in the flesh, and he did all of that as Paul will later write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if God gave his son, how will he also not give you all things? What could possibly separate you from the love of God in Christ? What else could be given other than God himself on your behalf, for your behalf? So when we think about ourselves as narrowly cheating death, I'd love for us to think about it in not just like this idea of Luther, we just kind of missed a thunderstorm, but to think not only have we narrowly escaped death in Christ, but now we also have God on our side. If he did not also do all these things for you, he gave you Jesus Christ himself, how will he also not give you all things? Right? What could possibly, what could possibly separate you from that love? The cross is this fulcrum. Jesus Christ coming and condemning sin in the flesh, verse 3 of chapter 8, is this fulcrum on which redemption hangs. On the cross, Christ bore our sins and faced the death that we deserved, and in so doing, he nullifies our sentence, our very right sentence of death, and opens the way for reconciliation to God. 
we receive a life that we didn't deserve um, in spite of the very guilty, the very just guilty sentence that hung over our heads. But this free life has genuine marks. He says right here, right, that those who live, verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But we don't want to be that because we've been set free from the flesh. So those who set their spirit uh, on the, excuse me, those who live according to the spirit set their mind on the things of the spirit. Christian freedom is the actual freedom to appreciate the law of God for what it is. It's so that uh, Psalms 19 becomes true about your heart that you do delight in the law of God, that it is perfect to you, that you would genuinely say about the law, it is sweeter than honey, more precious than gold, because in keeping it, your servant is warned to no longer ultimately be subjected to rebellion, that when you see the line, you're not attracted to it to cross it or transgress it, but you receive it for the gift that it is. I would say there are probably three, there's more, but three I could think of from the text, Mark's, to this free life that we receive in Christ. The first is holiness. Being freed from death's grip, we're called to a life of holiness. We're called to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, to live in accordance with the Spirit. This isn't about legalistic um, adherence to rules. We talk about holiness. Um, The way the Bible talks about holiness is wholeness. That's a a good way maybe to put uh, put it in your mind. Holiness means a lot of different things, right? It means you could trans- set apart. All those are true. It means holy for, for sure, set apart, uh, different, wholly different. But ultimately, it means complete, perfect, whole. And ultimately, if we think about the narrative of the Bible, that makes sense to us because what we're, what we're fallen from, from the garden, what we've fallen from is perfect, whole communion with God. And what we receive in salvation and in restoration is a restoration of what? That whole communion with God again. Why is God holy? It's ultimately because he has no need apart from anybody else. He is holy unto himself, set apart. So again, holiness, this life is not marked by legalistic adherence to rules. To set the mind on the Spirit is not to have a checklist to make a new law for yourself. It's to delight in the law of the Lord, right? The second mark of a free life is probably one of discipline, I'd suggest. So freedom in Christ isn't licensed to live carelessly. It involves discipline, a commitment to growing in faith and understanding the will of God. What what does it mean that we would do that? It means that we would reflect on the law, on God's word, meditate on it day and night to understand it, to seek it. So there's roles of spiritual disciplines here. To set the mind on the spirit in 2024 is to think about how to live a disciplined Christian life. Again, not as a checklist, but how do I know the lover of my soul? So prayer, scripture study in that regard. Most of you, if you have a love of your life, you don't have to be counseled or told to spend time with them, to pay attention to them, to seek to know them, to pursue them. And Christ has pursued you, and he's the lover of your soul. Christian discipline is asked the question, do I love him? There's some practical advice I'll give uh, in cultivating a discipline 
uh, life in our busy and distracted ways. I, I hinted at it um, a little bit ago when I mentioned, uh, by all means, read through the Bible next year. They'll be wonderful. Um, but what's more likely attainable for you if you haven't ever and you don't have a habit of reading the Bible is to read the Bible for 15 minutes a day or five minutes a day and to start. We want to aim for ripples and not waves because ripples will have a really wide impact in your life. But waves are really hard to start, and when they don't happen, you get really discouraged. It's a lot easier to start a ripple in your life than a wave. But the first thing to do is to start with God's Word. So don't leap straight to, fe- uh, to fasting. Don't, uh, don't leap straight to, I'm going to pray for 30 minutes a day. Start with God's Word, and then in prayer say, God, you've said this. Um, here's where I fall short. Help me, Lord, to obey you. And that could be where you start. Again, we want to aim for ripples, right? And don't feel the pressure to make waves. We'll start in investing relationships with your, with your God. And then start and, and move out from there to your family. How do I pour into my family? This is a thing, you know, even Morgan and I uh, this morning had a conversation. I had to kind of make a schedule to organize our life. Like, how are we going to live our life in 2024, uh, it's, it's discipline, but it's how we will stay focused, and uh, we're still studying to grow in this area. Appreciate your prayers even, and growth for our own discipline. We'll start with family, and then we'll move out from family to church. How do I pour into the life here and then aim for our neighbors? How, do we, how does our life here ripple over and spill over into our neighbor's life? And then that third mark is ultimately life. The hallmark of a free life in Christ is living life itself vibrant, thriving existence, which is filled with hope, peace, and love, to where you really know deep in your heart that God has given me everything I need in Christ. He can't give me more than he's already done. And then to feel what that does to your soul to free you, that you can live your life knowing that the maker of all things has given you everything that you already need. And this brings us to our last and final point. The free life is yours to live in Christ. As we step into 2024, I pray you would embrace this life Christ has won for you. This isn't about just surviving. I would love for you to thrive in 2024 in the freedom and joy of being reconciled with God. To, to, to say about yourself, verse 9, that you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit because the Spirit of God does in fact dwell in you. Now, how do we do that? We embrace that gift. We embrace the Spirit of God by faith. We say to the Lord, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Help me walk in peace. Help me set my, set my sight, not on things of the flesh, but on the things of the Spirit, to take thoughts which are not godly, to take them captive, and to fill our minds with godly things. And it involves, a, it's a call to action. It's a call to action to live 2024 like you really have cheated death. So when you're free, God's instructions are no longer a yoke, but a clear guide on how you were designed to live life. And when you're free, you no longer wonder whether the the basis of your merit before God is on what you bring to the table, but it's a recognition that Christ brought everything to the table on your behalf. Free people know, are you good enough, is the wrong question. Free people know that the right question is, is is Christ good enough? Yes. And if you're in Christ, what? Condemnation rests upon you absolutely none. 
It's yours to have, brothers and sisters, in Christ for 2024. If you'll seize him by faith and set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to do this, help us to live the Christian life and to live it in faith. And we ask, Lord, even now as we turn our time to the supper and we reflect on what you've done for us in real fact, in body and in blood, that what we have in you is everything necessary for godliness, that we cannot possibly add to what you've already done for us. Help the supper to remind us of that, that we cannot add to what you've already done for us. We ask all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As our hosts come forward. And-